0: If you have your Bibles, turn them with me to Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians 4. If you don't have a Bible, just lift up your hand, and uh, we have plenty. Mark will get one over to you, to borrow or to have if you don't own a Bible. One of my favorite sounds in church is to hear those pages. I like that pages turning. Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to start at verse 1, and even though uh, this morning we're only going to, in the message, get through the first six verses, and we'll tackle the remaining first half of Ephesians 4 next week, I want to read the first 16 verses just to get the overall context here. Ephesians 4, Apostle Paul is writing under, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. For building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Father God, Your Word is truth. Your Word is life. Your Word is for us. So, Father, I pray that as the Word of God goes forth this morning, that Your Spirit would quicken our hearts, awaken our minds, illuminate our understanding so that we may see your word, hear your word, receive your word, understand your word, and then go beyond hearing the word, but move into doing the word, to be doers of the word. Help us to, to, to walk in that way where your word becomes central and affects every aspect of our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, one of the things that um, always fascinates me is when I meet somebody who is a Christian and it's somebody that I have never met before. I've never had a clue about this person and I meet them and I talk with them and immediately there I just there's just this bond that this person and I have. And we could come from completely different backgrounds and have completely different personality traits. But if this person is a follower of Christ, if they are a member of the family of God, if they are a believer, I just I feel this instant connection with them. Have you have you felt that? Has that happened to you? Just this person that you just you just met and you just feel this bond with them. I remember uh, last year my wife and I went to uh, to Africa. We went to Ethiopia to. Pick up our son Elijah, and uh, uh, I met many believers there and many Christians there. And we went to a uh, went to a church. It was a it was a like it was a multi ethnic church. There there were, there are Africans there and there are people from other parts of the world there, and uh, people of all different kinds of races and ethnic backgrounds. Um, and I just immediately just felt this bond with these people. It just. I, these were these were my people this was my tribe that's how I that's how I felt when I was with these folks and there's even been times where in life where I've met somebody and and uh in the beginning I didn't know in, in my head that they were a Christian they hadn't said anything but I just I just felt something I'm like there is something about this guy there's something about these these people and, 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 then, and then later on, I find out that they're Christians, and I'm like, I knew it! Because I just, I just, felt, I just felt something. I felt this bond. I felt this connection. And this is not, this is not imaginary. This is not something that, that we make up when we feel this way. That, those feelings are a reflection of a bond and a unity that exists between believers in Christ. And Ephesians chapter 4, uh, Paul begins to talk about how we as believers are to live with one another in light of this unity. He says, uh, in the very beginning there of chapter 4, he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That's interesting. What Paul really is saying is, be who you are. (laughs) Become who you are. You have become a new person in Christ. You have a new identity. Now, walk in that identity. Now, be who you really are. Become who you are supposed to be. And, you know, the whole Christian life, experientially, is a life of becoming, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's a journey of becoming. You don't become a Christian, and then all of a sudden, you're perfect, all of a sudden, all of your sin issues just melt away, and you just, you just move forward. That's not how it works in Christianity. Rather, what happens is, is that you, you, you become a believer, you become saved, you receive salvation, you become a part of the family of God, and, and, and you are in this state of becoming something different than what you were while not yet being everything that you should be. It's a process of growing. It's a process of maturing, of learning, of gaining increased victory over sin, and more and more realizing and embracing who you really are. And when Paul in Ephesians is urging the church in Ephesus, and he's urging the church at Harbin's as we read this this morning, and he urges you in verse 1 of this chapter to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, Paul is saying to you, be who you really are. Become who you are supposed to be. That there is a manner in which you are to walk, Paul tells us, a a destiny which you are to fulfill, a calling with which you are to live out. And for the rest of the book of Ephesians, chapter 4 on, uh, this is what Paul focuses on. And at this point in Ephesians, we enter a major transition in the book, Paul begins a transition from, from doctrine to practice, from theological from the theological to practical living, and these two are always meant to be woven together. There are people who try to tear those things apart. They focus on all teaching, all theology, all doctrine, I really don't care about that practical stuff, and they just kind of have their heads up in the clouds. And then there's people, I don't care about all that doctrine, I don't care about all that theology, just give me some meat, give me some practical meat to live by right now, that affects my life, that affects my job, that affects my relationship. And, and people tend to separate these two, and yet these two are meant to be woven together. One is related to the other, and one flows out from, from the other. And we, and we see this beautifully illustrated in the book of Ephesians. In chapters 1 through 3 of this book, where we've been so far, Paul describes how God has predestined us to be adopted as sons into his family and how we have a glorious inheritance to come. He talks about that in chapter 1. and then Paul moves on and in chapter 2, and he talks about the fact that before we were saved, we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins, and we were slaves to the devil. And by nature, we were children of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy, has raised us up. To new life. He has saved us and our salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And Paul in in chapter 2 and then moving on into chapter 3 tells us how God has taken two people, two people groups who have hated one another and were estranged from one another, Jews and Gentiles, and he has saved and adopted people from both groups and he's put them in the same family and they are now fellow heirs to God's inheritance. And so then that brings us to chapter 4, where after laying this, these beautiful doctrinal foundations in chapters 1 through 3, we finally get to that great important word that we see so often in Paul's letters that signals a shift now from doctrine to practice. That word is therefore. Look at verse 1. I therefore as a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That word, therefore, it's pointing us back to chapters 1 through 3. Okay, whenever you see the word therefore in the Bible, that is a signal that you need to go back and find out what was written prior to that for you to get an understanding of what is to come. So, When Paul says, therefore, he's pointing us back to those prior chapters in the book. In other words, Paul is saying, because of all the things that I have taught you in chapters 1 through 3, because of the fact that you have been adopted into God's family, uh, because God raised you from spiritual death and into spiritual life, Because you Jew and you Gentile, though you once hated each other and were estranged from each other, now you share the same Heavenly Father and the same inheritance and the same salvation and are part of the same family now because God is putting you, the church, on display to the world and to the evil powers and principalities to demonstrate His wisdom and His grace. And his kindness, because of all of these reasons, therefore, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Be who you are. And so for the remainder of Ephesians, Paul begins to tell us what this new family, what this new body called the church actually looks like in practice. Practically in relationship with one another. And, and in, in verses 1 through 16 of chapter four, which we'll be looking at this week and next week. There's there's three overarching things that I want to focus on. One is the unity unity of the church. Number two is the victory of Christ. And number three is the destiny of God's people. And for this morning, we're just really going to spend time focusing on that first thing, the unity of the church. Again, first three verses, read with me. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, why does Paul start with that? I mean, I think these opening verses might be very boring to some people. They might seem a little anticlimactic. Paul is calling us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. And I can see some people in the church of Ephesus and maybe even in this church on the edge of their seats hanging on Paul's every word. And if I was reading this for the first time, I'm sure I'd be expecting Paul to say something very, very different. I'd be expecting Paul to say maybe something like, walk in the manner worthy of your calling by doing great deeds for Christ, by going out and preaching the gospel, by caring for the poor. By looking after widows and orphans and, and just impacting the world big time for Jesus. But he doesn't start that way. And he doesn't even start out by talking about your own personal spirituality, where it's just about you and Jesus. He, he doesn't just say walk in a manner, he doesn't say walk in a manner worthy of your calling by having a personal quiet time with God every morning. By having a personal prayer time every morning. See, walking in a manner that is worthy of your calling isn't just about you and Jesus. The Christian life, Christianity, isn't just about you and Jesus. It's not about flying solo. It's all about living your life in the context of a Christian community, a local congregation. So... Paul turns to the church and he says, Be humble with one another. Be gentle with one another. Be patient with one another. Bearing up with one another in love. And this to Paul is of the utmost priority. Now, why does Paul begin his exhortation to the church this way? Why is this first on his list of concerns? This is not arbitrary. This is not random. Paul didn't just reach into a hat full of exhortations he could give to the church and just randomly pull some stuff out, and these were just the first ones that happened to come out. Paul has a reason for this. Paul is not telling the church to treat one another in this way because we're just, it's just a nice thing to do. We're just supposed to be nice people. He's not telling us to walk in this way because it just makes us all feel warm and fuzzy and, and, and good inside and no one's feelings get hurt. Remember, Paul's practical exhortations do not come in a vacuum. They are flowing from the theological foundations that Paul has laid down in Ephesians 1, in Ephesians 2, and in Ephesians 3. The loving manner in which Christians are to treat one another should be the natural consequences, the natural outflow of what Paul has previously wrote. If Ephesians 1 through 3 is true, if we really believe that stuff, then we're going to live out Ephesians 4. Think about the traits that Paul wants the church to exemplify to one another. How he wants us in this congregation to treat one another. Humility, patience, gentleness, and bearing with one another in love. Now think about this. Who was acting in those ways towards us in Ephesians 1 through 3? Who has treated us with humility? Who humbled himself for us? Who humbled himself for the church? Christ did. Who has been gentle with us, though we were rebels and sinners who deserved to be consumed by God's wrath? Who treated us with the tenderness that a shepherd has towards a sheep? That kind of gentleness. Christ did. Who has been patient with us, though we have sinned over and over and over and over and over again? If you could put a number to your sins, how many would they be? And yet, who has extended great patience and long-suffering towards us? Christ did. Who loved us even though we hated Him? Who loved us while we were yet sinners? Christ did. And the humility, the gentleness, the patience, And the love of Christ has brought about our great salvation. And more than that, it has brought peace and reconciliation between men who were not living in unity, but were living in hatred and hostility towards one another. Jews against Gentiles. Paul in Ephesians 2 describes how God has taken these two divided groups and has made them into one new man in Christ. And Jews and Gentiles, formerly enemies, are now brothers in the same family. Now if the church at Ephesus turns around and they start warring with one another and not being patient with one another, or gentle or humble or loving towards one another, and they are fighting and devouring one another, then the lingering question is: did Ephesians 1 through3 really happen? Did God really do this great thing? Is the gospel really true? And do these people really believe in it? This is why Paul always got so angry when he saw the old hostilities and prejudices between Jews and Gentiles start creeping up again. It's disturbed him very much. I think about Galatians 3. You can turn there with me if you want. It's real easy to get there because it's just the book right before Ephesians. And in Galatians 3, Paul describes an incident where he had to confront the apostle Peter over this very issue. Paul talks about how Peter, a Jew, was eating and spending time with some Gentile believers. Gentile meaning non-Jewish. And that's great that he's doing that. At at that moment, he is walking in a manner that is worthy of his calling. He is demonstrating the gospel to be true by eating and fellowshipping with these Gentile believers. He is showing by his lifestyle that he really believes what Jesus has done and that God is is building a family for himself from people of all races, reconciling men to God and reconciling men to one another. The problem comes, though, when certain Jews show up that Peter is intimidated by. And look at what Paul says in Galatians 3, starting at verse 11. But when Cephas... Cephas is another name for Peter. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men from James, he was eating eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself fearing the circumcision party he's hanging out with gentiles he's eating with gentiles he's fellowshipping with gentiles all of a sudden some of these jews show up and peter's like he you know he picks up his burger or whatever and he goes over and he leaves those gentiles and he sits with the other jews and starts hanging out with them and completely just throws the gentiles under the bus and look what paul says in verse 13 of galatians 3 peter's actions began affecting other people to Paul. Why this got Paul so upset? Paul says in verse 14, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. The reason why Peter was not living in step with the truth of the gospel is because the gospel is saying one thing but Peter by his actions is saying the exact opposite. How Peter was treating those other Christians was anti-gospel. It was preaching a different gospel. He was living in a manner not worthy of his calling. Rather, he was living in a manner that was communicating to the world, I really don't believe this. I really don't believe that God has done what he said he did. I really don't believe the core of the gospel. I want you to think about that for a moment. There is a way to live that is worthy of the calling to which you and I have been called to. And then there are ways to live that are not in step with the gospel, that even lies about the gospel and lies about the Christ whom we claim to represent and who we are supposed to image. And I would say, when you're not living in step with the gospel, not only are you being anti-gospel, you are being anti-Christ. Right here at Harbin's Church, we in this room, we need to be very, very careful with how we treat one another in this church. We, we don't realize how serious this is. We Think about what serious sins may be. Oh, you know, stealing, murder, adultery. We've got these biggies over here. But we don't realize how much of a biggie this stuff is. We may not be patient with someone else in this room, and we may just brush it off and say, well, you don't know how many times that person has just rubbed me the wrong way. We may not be gentle towards someone in this church. Some Christians are like a bull in a china shop, and we may just laugh it off and say, oh, that's, that's just how I am. We may not be loving towards someone else in this church, and we may just say, well, that person is just not lovable, so I'm not going to associate myself with them. And all the while, we don't realize how anti-gospel our conduct is. And we don't have the Jew-Gentile conflict going on at Harbin's. But there are so many other ways that we can so often disrupt the unity of the Spirit in this church. There's a sense in which the kind of judgment that you might have about someone, maybe maybe a sense of unrighteous judgment towards someone because of how they might dress or because of what background they come from or the kind of judgment you might have towards someone because of how they raise their kids in a way that's different than you or even the kind of judgment you might have towards someone because of a theological disagreement you may have with a sincere Christian. There is a sense... In which sitting around with a group of people, sitting around with them after church, and and harshly picking apart a point in the sermon or something else that the pastor did that you you didn't like, and you're sitting around gossiping about that and and, and feeding into this with one another and complaining about those things. There's something that, that, that can be so violent and detrimental to the gospel of Christ on a cosmic scale. It could be a number of things that that we might do that might not seem all that serious to us that people would never call you on. And yet some of the worst violence we can do towards the gospel springs from how you and I treat one another here at Harbins because we can treat one another in a way that tells lies about the gospel which then tells lies about the church which then tells lies about Christ because the church is the body of Christ. And the question that we face this morning is, do we really believe the gospel? And our first instinct is to say, well, of course I believe the gospel, duh, I'm here. Yeah, I believe the gospel. But then the next question is, well, why is your life not in step with the gospel? Why do we treat our brothers and sisters with a lack of love and graciousness? with a lack of gentleness and humility and patience, if we really believe that God has done something in this gospel, not just to us personally, but to us corporately as a people, then the overflow of that belief, of that doctrine, of that theology should spill over into our lives and affect how we treat everyone else in this room. Not only does lack of love call into question the gospel, but it can even call into question our very own salvation. I mean, John talks about this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who who does not love his brother. Paul says, going back to Ephesians 4, Paul says in verse 3, we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And those virtues we just read, the, the gentleness, the patience, the humility, the love, those are the means by which that unity is to be maintained. We are in one sense already united in Christ through the Spirit. But we play an active role in maintaining that unity through how we treat one another in the local congregation. And Paul says that we are to be eager to maintain that unity. We are to be excited about that, eager, enthusiastic, aggressive about maintaining that unity. It's not just sort of a passive thing. It's an active thing. Often we tend to think of peace between people as something that's passive. If we want peace, we're just going to back off, and we're going to do nothing, and peace will just happen. But Paul speaks of peace in a very active way, that we are to pursue peace, that instead of being passive, we actually play a part in going to that brother or that sister and treating them in a way that helps facilitate peace and unity. Jesus says in in Matthew 5 that the bond of peace between brothers has preeminence over your own personal worship time with God. Again, true Christianity is not flying solo. True Christianity is not just about you and Jesus or me and Jesus. Rather, your life is to be lived out in, in the context of a community with the people of God. Jesus in Matthew 5, verse 23 says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar In other words, coming to worship, giving an offering to God. If you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. This is a great example of what it means to be eager to maintain unity and peace. Notice that Jesus doesn't say if you have something against somebody, go to them. Jesus sets the bar higher than that. He says, if you know your brother has something against you, don't be passive. Don't wait for him to come. Be active, go to him and make it right. Jesus doesn't, doesn't say whether your brother, Jesus doesn't say whether your brother is actually right or wrong in having something against you. Jesus just says, no, no, no. You just go to your brother and you work it out. Be eager to maintain that unity. And if we are not, we run the risk of, as Paul says, not living in step with the gospel and even lying about our Lord. Now, in addition to the doctrinal foundations that Paul gives us in chapters 1 through 3, in verses 4 through 6 of of, uh, Ephesians 4, he gives us further theological grounds for the unity that we are to maintain. Verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, how is that significant? Well, Paul says there is one body and one spirit. This is important because, as, as Paul has been discussing earlier in Ephesians, the church is composed of of both Jews and Gentiles, but there are, not, there are not two peoples of God. There's only one people of God. Jews, uh, Jesus has taken two groups, and he has made them into one new man. And the proof, the bond, the evidence that the two are now one is because both Jew and Gentile in Christ have the same Holy Spirit. And Paul reminds us, as Paul reminds us that there is only one Holy Spirit, Then Paul goes on to say that there is one Lord. Paul here is referring to Jesus Christ. There is only one Christ, and that is the reason why there is only one faith and baptism. If there was more than one Savior, if there was more than one Christ, there could be more than one saving faith. In addition, the Scriptures speak of us being baptized into Christ. But if there are other Christ, then there can be other baptisms. But since there is only one Lord, that means we are to have only one object of our faith, that being Jesus, and only one baptism. And finally, Paul shows us here and reminds us that there is only one God and Father. That means there's only one family. Not two families, not three families. There's only one church, one people of God. And if all that is really true, then that should have a significant impact on how you treat every other believer In this room, Clayton, in his baptism today, expressed outwardly the inner, inward solidarity he has with Christ. He has died with Christ, been buried with Christ, been raised with Christ to. New life with baptism is not just an expression of solidarity with Christ. It's an expression of solidarity with all who have died, who have been buried, and who have been raised with Christ. There is only one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one family of God. So when when Clayton received Christ as Savior and Lord, he just didn't get saved. He just didn't get a ticket to heaven. He joined a family. Not all can call God their father. Father. To those who have received him, the Apostle John writes, he gives them the right to become children of God. Only those who are in Christ are a part of this family. And, and since Clayton can now call God his father, I can call Clayton my brother. He's not just some random person, he's actually my, my brother and we share a closer bond than blood relatives who don't have Christ share with one another. Even though Clayton and I are from totally different backgrounds and, and, and have different experiences, and, and we may not have that much in common, and, and we're of different races, kind of. I'm, all, I'm, I'm kind of there, but not quite. <laughs> Look at the hair, what, what little there is of it. But we are brothers. We are part of the same family. And because he is my brother and fellow heir, there is a manner in which I am to regard Clayton, in which I am to treat Clayton, uh, uh, treat, treat him by, by, if nothing else, just by virtue of the fact that, that he's my brother and we share the same father and we have the same inheritance in Christ. What God has done in Christ and through Christ is truly, truly an amazing thing. There are some people in this room right now who, if it were not for Christ, would have absolutely nothing in common with other people in this room. Apart from Christ, many of us would not be friends. We would not be hanging out. We we wouldn't be having this growing and developing relationship and the sense of family and community that is growing in this church. There are others in this room who, apart from Christ, might have even been enemies and at each other's throats because you are so different. There are people in this room from all different kinds of backgrounds and have all different kinds of personality traits and histories and interests. And some things we may have in common other things we don't. And yet if you stripped away all of the things that we might have in common with one another, if you took all those things away, you would have a bond of unity in the Spirit through the gospel of Christ. And Paul turns to us in Ephesians and he says, now be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And we do this through humility towards one another through gentleness toward, with one another, through patience with one another, through bearing with one another in love. Don't live like this unity isn't really there. Don't treat other people in this room in a manner that tells lies about Christ and what He has done. Don't treat other brothers beyond the, the, this church, these church walls, in a manner that tells lies about Christ. This local church is to be united, but there is a unity that we share with other congregations that share the same spirit and embrace the one Lord, the one faith, the one baptism, and have the same Father as we do. Now, as one of the pastors of this church, I often hear from people suggesting things that we need to do to make this church stronger and to glorify God better and to become better healthier as a church, and, I, and I'm always happy to hear what you think. I'm always happy to hear from you about those things. You can give me ideas on Bible studies and programs and on the type of outreaches that we do and so on, but as we think about Harbin's and as our future as a church and how this church can grow and be all that it was meant to be, we need to start exactly where Paul starts, We need to start with love. For as Paul writes to the church in Corinth, a church that was anything but united, (laughs) Paul reminds them in 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, If I deliver up my body to to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. In other words, Christians and churches can be busy doing a whole lot of spiritual things and a lot of good things and a lot of ministry. And we can bless others and we can give up our possessions for God. We can even be martyred for our faith. But if we are a loveless people, it gains us nothing. It's a waste. Now, that's hard for a lot of us to accept. We often put the cart before the horse and we are very much doers, aren't we? We want to throw ourselves into ministry, we want to throw ourselves into evangelism, we want to throw ourselves into feeding the poor. We want to throw ourselves into all kinds of things in order to impact the world for Jesus Christ. And love just kind of seems like a a peripheral thing, kind of a side thing, almost an optional thing based on how I act and how we act sometimes. We will give lip service to love, but we will trample and hurt our own brothers and sisters in Christ as we fight for our own way and we are so consumed with our own preferences and ministries and and, and such a church might be a busy church but I guarantee you it will be a weak and ineffective church in the long run. If we don't don't get this love thing right, Harbins, we got to get this love thing right before we move on to other things. If we get everything else right, we get our doctrine right, and our ministry's right, and our discipleship program's right, and our music right, but we don't get this love thing right. We're sitting around harboring resentment or a bad attitude towards the guy who is sitting two rows ahead of you. Or if we're grumbling and complaining about leaders in the church behind their backs, or if the leaders grumble and complain about others in the church behind their backs and no one is eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, then Harbin's church will be a dead church. And Jesus is going to set us aside, and he'll find someone else to use. You know what church didn't get the love thing right? The church in Ephesus. (laughs) Can you believe that? In case you didn't know, this book I've been preaching from, the book of Ephesians, was written to the church in Ephesus, and Paul has spilled a lot of ink and has probably shed a lot of tears in prayer over this church. I think Paul knew this church was in danger of getting everything right except for love. And Paul spent so much time laying down the theological foundations for the love and the unity that they are to have, that they are to express towards one another. And then Paul spends Ephesians four, and Ephesians five, and Ephesians six, telling them practical ways in how they are to love one another. Later on in chapter four, Paul reminds them to speak the truth in love. Yes, speak the truth. Say what is right. Embrace sound doctrine, but speak the truth in love. You know who the pastor of the church of Ephesus was? Timothy. You recognize that name? Book first and 2 Timothy. Paul wrote that to him. He was the pastor at the church in Ephesus. And he tells Timothy in, um, in the book of 2 Timothy, he says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil, and correcting his opponents with gentleness. Look at the qualities that Paul wants Timothy to cultivate. He talks about kindness, which is a, an expression of love. He talks about patience. He talks about correcting his opponents with gentleness. Do these words sound familiar? This, this is this is. Much like the qualities and characteristics that Paul is urging the Ephesians to embrace in Ephesians chapter four, he's telling the church to embrace these qualities. He turns around, writes to Timothy, tells the pastor of the church to embrace these qualities and live by them. And the Ephesian church got a lot of things right, but ironically, after all the efforts and energies that Paul poured out on behalf of the church of Ephesus, something happened. I don't know exactly what happened, but by the time you got to the get to the book of Revelation this church is in serious danger of being judged by Jesus. By being severely disciplined by Jesus. You can turn there with me if you want, you can just listen, but it's in Revelation chapter 2 where Jesus has a message for the church in Ephesus. After all that Paul has wrote to the Ephesians in the book of Ephesians, after all that Paul had instructed Timothy in, and 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, after all of these things. Now Jesus, later on in the church's life, and this could be well after Timothy was pastor. I'm not saying that this is Timothy's fault. He might be dead by this time, for all we know. But Jesus now has a message for the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write "...the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand..." who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This church got a lot right. In particular, Jesus commends them for their work and toil. They were a busy church. They were a hard-working church. Jesus talks about their patient endurance. This church has been through a lot of difficult times, a lot of tough times, and they're still hanging in there. Jesus says they cannot bear with those who are evil and have tested those who call themselves apostles, and they weren't really apostles, and he found them to be false. In other words, the church at Ephesus was interested in the purity and in the integrity of the church. And they were particularly sensitive to false teachers, teaching things contrary to the gospel, and they were able to expose them as charlatans and enemies of Jesus. And yet for all those good things, Jesus has something against this church. He says, you have abandoned the love you had at first. Now this verse is so sad to read, in particular after what we just read in Ephesians 4, where Paul urges the Ephesians to, in light of the truths of the gospel, bear with one another in love. Now, some people wonder, well, does this mean that their love for Jesus had grown cold, or does it mean their love for one another has grown cold? I don't think it's either or. I think it's both and. Love for Jesus and love for your brothers are connected. You can't truly love others unless you have a healthy love for Jesus, and you can't really love Jesus if you hate your brothers. The text says, Again in Revelation, you have abandoned the love you had at first. This church at first did have love. They took Paul's words seriously. They weren't always cold. But something happened as time went on. And they became like some churches today. Busy for God. Big on doctrine. Big on truth. Big on right preaching. Big on exposing false doctrine. And yet... They are cold, and they are loveless. And none of the good things that they are doing will protect them from the judgment of Jesus. Again, Revelation 2, verse 5, Jesus says, and warns them. Jesus is so gracious, He warns them. He's giving them a chance. He says, remember, therefore, from when you, where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not... I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This is terrifying. This church is doing good things. they got good doctrine. They're preaching with their lips the true gospel. They're opposing and exposing false teachers. And Jesus says, if you don't repent, I'm going to remove your lampstand. The image of the lampstand is drawn from Old Testament imagery and is associated with the Spirit of the Lord. Jesus threatens to withdraw the presence and the empowerment of the Spirit from this church, from that church in Ephesus. It's reminiscent of how the Lord responded to apostate Israel. Now what does this mean for Harbin's church? It means we have got to fall on our knees and repent of any lovelessness that we may have. It means we can't just rely on our good doctrine, or our ministries, or our outreach, or any other good thing that we might be doing. I don't want Harbin's lampstand to be removed. No church is indispensable. No local congregation is indispensable. If we won't walk in a manner worthy of our calling, and if we won't be humble towards one another, and patient towards one another, and gentle towards one another, and bear with one another in love, then I fear that Jesus will remove our lampstand, pass over us, and find churches that are getting the love thing right, and He will use them in mighty ways. I don't want Harbins to be a dead, cold, and loveless church. I want to, Harbins to be passionate and alive with a burning love for God and for one another. I want this church to tell the truth about the gospel and the truth about Christ through how you and I treat one another. Have you been failing in the area of loving other brothers and sisters in Christ? I can't answer that question for you. You have to examine your heart before the Lord this morning and ask Him to expose any sin in your heart. Christian husbands and wives need to tell the truth about the gospel and how they treat one another. Christian parents and children need to live in response to the mighty work that Jesus has done for us. Christian people in this room need to treat one another with the same humility and gentleness and patience and love that Christ has treated us with. You want to reach the world for Christ? You want to see souls saved and brought into this family? the mission begins right now not out there but right here in this room before God Jesus says in John 13 a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another so how we love has evangelistic implications. If it is true that people will know that we are his disciples based on our love for one another, then the opposite is true. It will not be evident to the world that we are his disciples if we fail to love one another. The gospel in and of itself is offensive. And there's nothing that we can do or should do to try to change that. The gospel is offensive. That's always the way that it's going to be. But let us not add to the offense by our own sins and our own failure and our own lack of love towards one another. How many times have I heard people say or express doubts about Christ and about doubts about Christianity because of how they've seen churches act? And churches treat one another. And we can say, yeah, that's just a smokescreen. They really don't want to come to God. They're just looking for excuses. I know people who outside of Christ are... I know those people are looking for excuses. Let's not give them more excuses. And sometimes these folks are right about their observations about churches and how we treat one another. Let's not add to the offense of the gospel with our own sin. As we move into our response time, I want to challenge you, and I'm going to do this too. I am not exempt from the stuff that I'm preaching. I struggle with this stuff. I want us to examine ourselves before the Lord. I want you to pray and ask the Lord to expose the areas of your heart where your love is lacking. Have you not walked with gentleness, with patience, with humility, with love towards another member of this congregation? That person that you are sinning against, they may be in this room right now. They may be sitting right by you or a few rows ahead or behind you. Perhaps. You need to make that right before the Lord immediately. Then you need to make it right with that other person. I'm calling you to repent before the Lord this morning. If you have something against someone or if they have something against you, you need to go to them now even during this upcoming response time, and talk and pray with them. I want us to seek God this morning. Ask Him to help you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, to become who you were meant to be, to be who you really are. Pray where you're sitting, or you can come up front and and pray up front here, that's fine. If you want someone to pray with, I'll be here. I would love to pray with you. Be my privilege. Let's call out to the Lord this morning. I don't want our lampstand removed. I don't want to tell lies about God and the gospel about how I treat other people in this church. I don't want us collectively to be doing those things. I want us to collectively have a time of confession and repentance before the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I can't, I can't make the Word have impact. Only you can do that, so I pray that the wind of your Spirit would blow through this room this morning. And if there are things that we need to repent of in the area of love, in the area of how we treat the brothers and sisters in the Lord, I pray that you would expose those areas of our heart. I pray that you would shock us even, There may be some of us who think that we're all good. We've got this nailed down. And yet there are corners of our heart that we are blind to. And so, Father, I pray by your Spirit that you would help us to see those things so that we may repent, so that we may walk in a manner worthy of the calling, so that we may demonstrate with our lives that you are real and that the gospel is real and that you have indeed done a great work and you have reconciled us to you and you have reconciled sinful man to man. And you have brought us in the same family. Oh God, thank you for your patience. How many times have I messed up? Thank you, Lord, for your gentleness. I deserve to be seized by your hands and thrown into the lake of fire. And yet you are so gentle with me. Father, thank you for the humility of Christ, who though he was in the very form of God, though he was God, though he is God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he clothed himself in flesh, became man, condescended himself, and he came down on our level to be one of us, tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin and humbled himself to the point of death even death on a cross oh god thank you for the humility of christ and paul says in philippians 2 that we are supposed to have the humility of christ in mind in regards to how we treat one another and finally god thank you for your love not that we loved you but you loved us <laughs> we hated you we didn't want anything to do with you. You loved other things. And yet you persisted in love and you loved us to the point of saving us. Thank you so much for that. Now help us to go forth and image those traits of God in how we treat one another. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to close with a song that we'll play and I believe the words will be on the screen. Sing, pray, give your offering, put in your prayer request, respond in your heart to the word that has been preached this morning.